Acts 19, 13 through 20. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right. Good morning, everybody. Everybody all right? Feeling good? All right. It's funny, like that last song, I haven't sung that song in like 20-something years. But like, it hit me that like, between the last singing and this singing, like I've had a whole life. Like so much stuff. I like not the same person. So like, when you sing stuff in college, you have a certain faith construct. Since then, I have, I, you know, I deconstructed, I lost my faith. It came back in a whole new way. Things look different. And it's like coming to this point from that point, you look back and you can say, oh, the words are the same, but it all, it just, it means so much difference than it did then. You know what I mean? There's like this, uh, oh, so one of my favorite ways to describe like this feeling, because it's a weird feeling to describe like, oh, these are the same words, but it, it all means something different now. Um, there was like this, once in a while I'll bring this up if you talk to me about like, deconstruction and theology and stuff, but there's this, like, Chinese philosopher, I don't remember who it was, it may have even been Confucius, who said something like, uh, once the mountain was a mountain and the river was a river, and then the mountain was not a mountain and the river was not a river, but then the mountain was a mountain and the river was a river again. Um, and, like, it sounds like a nonsense sort of line, but it's amazing how, like, at the beginning of my faith journey, that I had, like, this view of, like, you have Trinitarian theology, like it doesn't make any sense, there's no point to it, all that. It, it, you know, it's, it's weird when you're just young and you're deconstructing everything, like I don't see the point of talking about God like this, it doesn't even make any sense, and it's, you know, they're not writing about it until like the third century, so what is it even doing here? And then we, I kind of like threw it out, and at some point it came back, and it was totally different, it was like the most important thing, but it's the same idea, but suddenly it hits different. So like, all that to say, that just happened, just hit me totally different. Um, and so, okay, so here's our weirdo passage today. We got the seven sons of Sceva, um, and we're going to talk about all this. Uh, this. This passage is the pinnacle of Paul's ministry. This is like, it peaks right here, and Luke intends for the passage to do this. And we're going to talk about why, and we're going to look, sort of look at this from a couple different angles. But mainly today, we're talking about power. I want to look at power from a, a high sort of standpoint, uh, and then I want to get closer, and I want to like look at like, the small ways we express power as well, and, and how these passages speak to that. I know like one of the problems with going through books of the Bible and teaching sort of expositionally is, uh, is that it's kind of like an entire book of the Bible, we usually have the same theme the whole time. And we've been doing this for two years, so we've talked a lot about power, we've talked a lot about governing authorities, we've talked a lot about um, how different the kingdom of God is than the kingdoms of the world. And so a little bit more of that today. Uh, but that's why I've been breaking it up and doing other stuff as well. So let me jump in and pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage right here with the seven sons of Sceva. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for allowing us to be here, for gathering us together uh, here as one people in one body. I, uh, I ask that you would be present, that you would meet us here, that you would begin to do your work uh, or continue doing the work that you've already been doing in this space, in this room. And thank you for everyone that you've brought here. I pray that um, the questions that they've been kicking around this week, the things they've been struggling with, the um, the heavy burdens they've been bearing, that somehow something that is said this morning will connect with them where they are in their situation, that it would just contextualize itself directly into their life. I pray that you do this for me too. Do this for all of us. Um, speak to us. Give us presence. Help us to understand. Uh, help us to, to grasp the concepts that you have for us to understand. I, I pray that uh, we would be present here, not distracted, not dwelling in anxiety about the future or the past, that we would be here. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, uh, oh, wait a minute. Where are we at? No, I'm going to back it up. Okay, so the seven sons of Sceva. I'm just going to leave that there for now. Um, yes. Okay, so the seven sons of Sceva. So what's going on is Paul is ministering for two years now in the city of Ephesus, and uh, it's, it's a very important city in the Roman Empire. And for two years, he's, and more than that, actually, he's preaching the gospel message to the people of that city, not in the synagogue, but he's rented out a meeting hall called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he's meeting there every day from about 11 to 4, and we can estimate that in those two years, he would have preached to about 2 million people that would have passed through. Um, In the middle of the afternoon, this is what Paul would have done. So as people moved for two years through the city, that's how many people he probably would have preached to. It probably would have been a lot of the same message over and over and other ideas sprinkled in. But things are happening when Paul preaches. People are being healed. They're even like we talked about last week. If that was last week, the the weeks are so long right now. Um, Yeah, I think it was last week where I wore an apron to preach in. Um, And they're taking Paul's apron and they are healing people with it. And there's all kinds of miraculous, bizarre stuff that's happening. And they're trying to make sense of it. And so what happens is these other traveling, wandering preachers come through. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. Um, and we aren't sure exactly who they are. The passage here says that they're son, seven sons of the high priest. The problem is that like, um, we, we have records, a lot of the records from that time period, and there was no high priest named Sceva. So like, th- these are probably traveling. Um, they're probably associated with some other sort of Jewish sect or something, and this, they have a high priest whose name is Sceva, but they are traveling Jewish sort of uh, magicians, if you will. Their, their role in society, they feel, they make a living, they, they carve out a living by traveling from city to city, casting out demons wherever they find them, um, and traveling sort of itinerant preachers in this day and people doing this kind of stuff would make a decent living. Um, most people who were high society and high class made their living with their mind and with their, with their words, with their mouth. Only the, the only people that worked with their hands were low class low status people. And so everything, everyone did everything that they could not to work with their hands, which is why when you look at the church, it's so important to see how they're living uh, because they're working with their hands on purpose to, so, to liken themselves to the people at the bottom. Um, and so these seven sons of Sceva are going around healing people and they're traveling through the Ionian Peninsula where Corinth and Ephesus and a couple other cities are, Cancrea, I think. Um, <clears throat> and as they're going, they hear about the fame of this guy, Paul, who is in Ephesus and he's preaching day after day. And they hear that he's healing people. And Paul's getting a lot of crowds, a lot of recognition. His name is becoming well known. Um, and so these men, they begin to travel around um, and heal people. But they hear about Paul and they're amazed by what's happening. And so they begin to speak and, and try to cast out demons in the name of 
of Jesus whom Paul speaks of. That's how they describe it. Um, now here's the thing. The miracles that were happening in Paul's church and stuff, these are all sort of centered around the work of the church. The, they're done in relationship. They're done in, in sort of deep, intimate understanding of each other and each other's needs and what, is, uh, what God is doing there. But there's always, whenever something really good begins to happen, whenever it's moving people, whenever there's a movement where people are like stirred to this thing, what happens is it gets flooded with, with what I guess you could call charlatans, people who just kind of come in and they look at it and they're like, I can make a buck off of this, right? We see this with every movement that pops up. We've seen it a lot in the last few years. Every movement that pops up, someone pops up and says, well, I can make a buck off of this. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use this to do my thing and I'm going to make a living. And so they begin to do this. Um, and they are, there's always somebody who even will take the things that God is doing in the church and try to market them and turn them into some sort of thing for people to consume. And they'll make t-shirts and all kinds of stuff and just begin to sell like programs and they'll begin to market and sell stuff. Um, because oftentimes we've been so formed by the economic structures of our day, we see something that God is doing. And instead of saying, how can I be a part of this? How can I take part in it? We want a piece of it. We want to own a chunk of it. We want to profit off of it. Um, and so we want to monetize it in some way. We want to wield this wonderful thing that God is doing, like some sort of charm, and gather tons of people, and usually piles of cash as well, and influence and power, uh, to ourselves by using the things of God. Uh, this is where the, the entire idea of celebrity preachers comes from. There should not be someone who is well known for being a famous pastor, um, pastoring is an intimate thing that you do with people, where you lead them through their problems and trials. It's not something you do on a giant stage and, uh, to, to get famous. Um, the sons of Sceva, though, had heard about Paul's wonders, things that, that had been taking place um, through the ministry that he had, and they grab it, and they go around beginning to try to heal people in the name of, of um, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, um, let's see. Let's see, somebody's walking around. Here we are. Um, I'm sorry, my notes got a little out of order here, so I'm going to be jumping around. I noticed it earlier, earlier about, about a half hour ago, I was walking around like, I forgot something. I talked to a few of you even. I was like, I'm forgetting something. What am I forgetting? I forgot to rearrange some of my notes that I noticed. So here we go. We're doing it live. All right. Um, and so all of this is very interesting to me because um, these sons of Sceva don't seem to even understand what it is that they're trying to wield. They have no intimate understanding of the information of which they are sort of meddling in and dealing with. They don't seem to know anything about Jesus. They don't seem to know about the power of God or how it functions. Um, they seem to equate it with just the power they understand in the world. They don't seem to have any grasp of what Paul is really teaching. Um, <clears throat> instead, it's simply this newest tool of the trade for the work that they were doing. And so they wield it. They grab sort of this thing, like people are being healed in that name. Okay, I'm going to use that name too. So we have this whole like, we, we open up a satchel and we have all these gods that we, can, that we can use and all these different methods and incantations that people will listen to and whatever draws people in. I've got a different tool in my tool bag for it. And so they added sort of the message of Paul to their tool bag and they pulled it out and they began to wield it and say, oh, we're going to do the same thing we always did through the name of Paul uh, and through the name of Jesus that Paul speaks of. And so they try to cast out some demons and... Um, Things go horribly, terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. Uh, because they're completely ignorant of the things of Christ, of the things that he revealed about God, about power. C.S. Lewis, uh, when he writes about power, there's this passage that, that always pops into my brain where he writes about the folly of, of trying to gain power without paying the humble price of admission 
to the God whose power it is. We, we want to come into this thing and, and join this thing and somehow get a piece of it and wield it for ourselves. There are so many of us out there wielding the power of Christianity, putting the cross on things and, and saying the name of Jesus, putting Christian flags up and waving them around, doing all sorts of things in the name of this Jesus whom very few of us in our modern like faith constructs really fully grasp. We think it is something that like it's sort of a it's sort of an ideology that we grab and we wrap ourselves in and we defend like, like we do with everything else in our lives. We, there's two options. Everything is binary in America and you pick a side and you grab and you wrap yourself in it and you run and you chant for that thing. But Jesus is something wholly different that they do not understand. He is, when I say holy, literally that means different. They're incapable of, of coming up with the ideas of Christ on their own because they are so different and so vastly um, unique in the world. Uh, in the empires of this world and how these kings operate. There are many people today that are claiming a Christianity whose roots that they do not understand. They've never read the writings of the church fathers. They've never grasped um, how the church was founded, how it has changed, and how it has moved. And that is all of our fault, collectively. Um, That we don't dig it. The the, the biggest sort of, in my generation, the sort of the Gen X uh, generation, our, our big church movements were sort of just to reject and flip the tables of everything that was offered to us. That's sort of what we did. Um, we weren't interested in gathering in these big, huge auditoriums with lots of people and singing happy music. We wanted minor, minor chords, and we wanted, like, dark. We wanted to turn the lights off and light some candles and burn some Nag Champa and just, like, and just sort of, like, flip the whole system and try to get a sense of the holiness that we have heard about and read about from the early Christians. Um, And we had just such this desperate thing that like, we don't want what you're handing to us. It's not fulfilling. Um, We can't, at the same time, listen to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and still go to this bright sort of Thomas Kincaid place. Like, we can't do it. And so we wanted to throw the whole thing out. Um, But oftentimes that leads to a, a sort of a neglect of like, the roots, what Christianity came from. We don't understand the mindset of these ancient early people living underneath, underneath the most oppressive empire you can imagine and boldly sort of practicing this sort of punk rock religion that they had, that they were walking around with. It was this totally different thing. And the amount of pain they took for it was incredible. And yet they stood firm and just kept moving. And C.S. Lewis writes a lot about the folly of trying to gain power of this thing without paying the price of humble submission without, without humbling yourself to the other people in the church and learning, like, what is this about, actually? What is Christianity? Because all I see is sort of this marketing thing to gather people to hear a TED Talk. What is it? And is it powerful enough to change anything at all? So there's a, I mean, I sort of, I have to admit that my struggle with how I perceive Christianity, how it is wielded today. I have a lot of struggles with it. Um, and it's, it's not just like this surface thing. It's, it's, as you look around, it's become so much a part of our culture. And we live in one of the most powerful culture in the world. And Christianity just, it's just, American Christianity just seems to meld with it. Like there's no problem. Like it doesn't push up against it. It doesn't push back against it in any way. Um, I admit like I'm uncomfortable whenever I watch things like the inauguration. Every inauguration, you watch it, and it's filled with scripture. Um, And it's being juxtaposed with images of earthly power and earthly strength and wealth and might and monuments and earthly leaders and all these things. And the scripture, like, 
And here's, the, and here's where it gets uneasy, uneasy because I, while I agree with the scripture, like I, I, I love that passage. They pick some of my favorite passages and just project them onto the, you know, like the Washington Monument or something. Like I agree with the passage of scripture. I'm wildly uncomfortable with the way it's being wielded. These, these words written by these ancient people at the bottom of the empire whose leader the empire killed and crucified in their, in their ancient torture device, like, and, and, and then traveled around trying to pick the rest of them off because they were a threat to the power of the empire. Because they were declaring a whole other king that does not easily at all meld into their empire. And so that, to me, I guess it's a glimmer of hope when I see scriptures being used in public and powerful places and I'm like, ugh. Like, to me, like, that's, that's a little bit of a victory in my heart because I'm like, good, I, I, I want people to be uncomfortable wielding the power of God. Because there's a certain way you should wield it with the heart of Christ, Amen. not the heart of even King David, not the heart of Joshua. The reason we have Jesus is to reveal to us, here's how, you've seen how we've tried to use power for so long, here's how it actually works. Here's how it works. Um, and what we all eventually find is the uncomfortable truth that, um, I mean, oh, let me show you. This is some of the things that Paul wrote to the people in the same peninsula. Paul writes, but he said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ, will, Christ wants to rest his power on people who, who know how weak they are, who want to admit how weak they are and say, I am nothing. And then Christ is like, I'll make you something and puts this power on top of them instead of the ones who are like, I have, I'm, I'm good. I've been to school, I got it, I understand it. You should see my spiritual ritual every single day. And God's like, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you with this. Um, and so, you know, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, their power, the power around us, is, is shaped differently. When you look at it, it's shaped differently. When you look at sort of the shape of something, it's like a nebulous idea, but the shape of their power is like a weapon, it's like a sword, like it... It's menacing. When you look at like how they display their power, you're like, oh, don't mess with that. When you look at Jesus, when you look at the power of the church, there's all, it's, it's a lamb. Like there's this, it's a cross. It's not something you're, you're afraid to approach, but it's not necessarily something you want to wield because everyone else in the power in, in the world looks so strong. And so it's this hard thing that we struggle with, the juxtaposition of all this. And what we eventually find is the uncomfortable truth that the mishandling of the name of God leads to pain. When we wield the power of God in ways that we ought not to, it always leads to pain. Not because God's going to punish you. I don't believe God is punitive. I believe God is restorative. But because this is what sin does. This is how sin works. If you're not sure what, if you're not familiar with the word sin, it's this, it's this Greek word hagios, which, that's the word holy. Um, <laughs> it's uh, a... <laughs> Confuse myself. Yeah, hamardia. And it's this word, it's, it's an archery. It's a first century archery phrase where you, you fire an arrow and you miss. No matter how close or how far off, you missed. You missed the mark. You were intended to hit there and you missed. You're a sinner. <laughs> like you, you, you missed the mark. It's just, it's just like, it's this thing where like, you didn't hit what you were intended to. Let's try again. But God's not over there like, you missed. Whack and hitting the guy. Like God didn't send this guy to rip their clothes off and beat them up and send them away. God, like... What they did is put themselves in a position um, to feel the repercussions of what they were doing. They wielded something they knew nothing about. And when you, and when you do that, you suffer. I mean, this is why Paul writes, and he makes one of the qualifications for a leader. He says, 
he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and fall. Oftentimes we, we get enlightened, we wake up to something and it's amazing. We wanna run around enlightening everybody else um, and it's the same with ideologies and, and, and political movements and all kinds of things. We read something and we wake up and we go around trying to wake everyone else up but the problem is all you do is make them mad because you're exercising power over them. People always push back when you do that. And so what you do is you live it and you display it and you say, I, I can't do that, I can't take part in that. Why? I've recently come to the conclusion of this. You've now just opened a conversation, now they're interested because you're living something. You're not just using your words. And until you get involved and get your hands dirty, nobody's really interested um, in submitting to your power. We, we follow people who lead well. We follow people, and, and people change to follow people who display sort of this humility that Christ displayed. Um, so, I mean, let's see. I had a whole subject here. I'm not sure how far to go into it. I will. Um, I wanted to take a talk real quickly about the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain. I've talked about this before. Um, when I was growing up, you know, you would hit your thumb with a hammer. You'd say a word. And you'd say, or, or you'd be surprised. You'd be like, oh my God. Uh, and your parents would be like, no, you took, the Lord, you took the Lord's name in vain. Don't do it. And so there, there's, these, there's these words that we could accidentally say that's taking the Lord's name in vain. But, but you, know what, you know what taking the Lord's name in vain actually is? It is, it is using, you know, it, it's really, it's conforming yourself to the patterns of the world and then using the name of Jesus to sort of bless your life. It is, it is living in a way that is opposite of, of the path of Christ and then sort of, taking a verse and proclaiming it and saying, see, God blesses what I'm doing, you see. It's being at the top of power and opening up Romans 13 and reading that and saying, you have to submit to the government. Um, they tried this during World War II. They, they've tried this all over the place, all through history. Powerful people wielding the text in this way, um, in a way that they were never intended to do. So taking the name of, of God in vain, it's twisting, twisting the words of God to justify your evil deeds. It's quoting a single passage of scripture to raise yourself up and push someone else down. It is, um, it's the, and to me, the ultimate display of irony of this is that our spiritual leaders for a couple of generations convinced us that it's something that you can do on accident instead of something that you set out to do to maintain your power over other people. Uh, instead, they want you to think saying the Lord's name in vain is like, it's, you can do it on accident. Like, if I surprise you, you're like, oh my God. Like, you just, okay, so you just did it. And that's wrong. Don't do that. While I'm over here profiting off the backs of people who are suffering and homeless and losing everything, and I'm scooping up everything that they're losing. Um, but it's what God wants. It's God is blessing me. You're taking the Lord's name in vain, and you're convincing everyone around you that it's something else so that you can keep going. Um, this ends poorly. It ends basically like this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So there's that. Um, <clears throat> this is like an apt, if not hyperbolic, description of what happens to Christians who use the name of Christ for their own power, their own wealth, political power. This is what happens for riches, for fame, authority, and co coercion, and control. You might gather a crowd. You might, build, you might build a large institution. You might do incredible, impressive things and get book deals and get huge, but it all ends with you running out screaming, bleeding, and naked. That's how this ends. Like, that's what happens. It doesn't end well. And we can look back, even in recent church history, of the last 20 years of, of our own church movements, how many of these people 
It ended terribly for them and continues to, and it's not even done happening. In the next few years, there will be colossal falls for many, many more Christian celebrities. And at some point, we're going to realize that, like, maybe we weren't called to wield that kind of power in the world. Maybe we were called to the bottom. Maybe we were called to relationship and the dinner table. And maybe we were called um, to spending time with people whom nobody would ever even notice. And maybe that's what God is doing. But no, we keep going to the top. That's what we keep chasing after. And so what happens is this. After that, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought out their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Uh, <clears throat> in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Um, this right here, this moment, is the climax of Paul's ministry. This is the peak. This is the mountaintop. And the reason is very simple. Ephesus was one of the centers of power in the entirety of the ancient Roman Empire. It was the center of political power. It was the center of, um, of, of, of economic power, of emperor worship. Um, the amount of magnificent temples. They had one of the wonders of the world there, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the Temple of Artemis, the Artemisian. Um, incredible place. And <clears throat> what happens is, the people in that city begin realizing that all of, the, all of the ways that they have received their power, that they perceive their power, all of their power has come from sort of their history, the gods that they worship, the scrolls, the incantations, the, um, the, the sort of cult rituals that they were taking part in. And they believed that all of this gave them all of this power. And then suddenly, um, they, they realize that there is something far more powerful and that they are no longer protected because they see these famous traveling preachers beaten and bloodied and naked running out of this building from this man that should have been just an easy job. And so what you see is them repenting of all of this. They're bringing out all of their scrolls. Um, I mean, it seems to me that Luke intends for this passage to be about power, about how it works, about how it is wielded. The most... The most, like, city, the, the city that is the most associated with power in that particular day. Probably equal with Rome in that moment. Um, I mean, the question of political power, how to order, how to steer people, how to change the way a society functions, is only one aspect of a much larger, sort of more nebulous conversation of, of how people's lives are transformed. How do people change? And this is what power really boils down to. How do you change people? How do you move people? How do you get people that are doing one thing to stop and to go in a different direction. And that's what it means to wield power. If you can do that, suddenly you have the ability um, to do amazing things or to do terrible things. It depends on what you do with it. But the question is, how do we get this? And Luke has carefully designed this entire episode in Ephesus as the climax of Paul's ministry because the question of power is, fr is, is, is front and center. I mean, look what he says. I want to highlight the way he ends this passage. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In what way? How did it happen? In what, grade, in what way did like, all these people begin to reject their powers and turn to Jesus? How did this happen? What was the method? Um, and that's sort of what we want to focus on because Ephesus was so incredibly powerful. As you walk through this city, the symbolism, 
the smells of the incense burning, the, the dance, the music, the worship happening in the temples, the sounds of the worship happening everywhere. Incredibly beautiful place. Incredibly, like, daunting the amount of power as you walk through this place. But the Christians have learned that God's method of changing people is very, very different because his power is wielded very, very differently than the powers of this world. The world could not imagine a power that can change the entire trajectory of a people um, by being present with them, by getting them together with people whom they are completely different than, different from, and, and, and sharing a meal, and praying with them, and listening to their needs, and speaking into their lives. The, the Roman Empire cannot conceive of a power that brings people together like that and somehow is able to do something important. It seems like this would just destroy who you are, but that is the power of God to bring all these different people together. It is a unifying, relational, um, intimate power that transforms us as we enter into relationships together. The world never imagined, especially the Roman Empire, never imagined that a worldwide movement could be established by somebody whom you openly killed in front of everyone to show how weak they are. Yet somehow this turns into this thing. Somebody who willingly allows himself to be arrested, who says nothing in defense of themselves, and ends up suffering in a public display of humiliation and shame, unlike anything else you could experience in that day. The world obviously looks at this and says, there is no power in this. This is how you fail. This is how you lose it all. But since that day, the Christians have understood that, no, no, every time we practice this, God does something amazing. Just ask Nelson Mandela. Like, 25 years in his prison, purposely going into it, never trying to, not saying a word, just saying, no, I, I, I'm, I'm here for doing the right thing and I will keep using my voice and my words to do the right thing. And God uses that to bring about justice and revival, um, laying the groundwork for all the future work that would be done there. There's, there's always a group of people, the Christians, who have understood this. So the seven sons of Sceva didn't realize that the power of God is established through relationship, through presence, and through service. These are the three ways, mainly, that you see the power of God being displayed in the church. Through presence, through relationship. Um, <clears throat> this is all of this. Uh, through presence, through relationship, and through service. And so they tried to invoke the name of Jesus from a position of power, and it fails. This is the difference... The way we wield power in a Christ-like way and a worldly way, this is the difference between providing a meal for your family or your friends or bringing a meal to somebody who is sick and just giving money to a homeless person or just giving a meal to a homeless person and moving on. You do it in a different way, and we have to admit this. There is a way you approach those who you love, who you view as your family. There is a way you bring them gifts and things that they need, needs that they have. There's a way you approach them that is powerless. You know, you sometimes, maybe you'll slip money into their pocket. You have more than they do, and you know they don't have any. So you'll, you'll find a code in their house, and you'll slip, you know, 300 bucks into their pocket. And you won't tell them who it came from. Why? Because how dare you wield power like that in front of your friends? You wouldn't, because you love them, and you care about them, and you know there's something happening. And yet we feel perfectly comfortable entering into all these public spaces and just wielding this power and saying, I've got what you need. You come to me, and you can get it. This is not how Jesus and the apostles did anything. Um, Dallas Willard, one of my favorite lines from him, is a great many things that cannot be pushed can be pulled. You can't get behind people and just, force them. This was, this was the way that, by the way, those scrolls that they were burning, in that path, if you add up like a drachma is like a, 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 a silver coin, if that's the sort of drachma, the measurement they're talking about on this peninsula, it's a silver coin and it's about a day's wages. So you're looking at four or $5 million worth of scrolls that these people were burning. So they gave up their power, their sources of power. They gave up all of it 
um, at great cost to themselves in order to enter into the community there. And this community grew and it flourished. You can read First and Second Timothy. You can read there. The, we, we have, I believe, some of the writings of one of their later bishops 100 years later named Onesimus. Like we have, um, by the way, Onesimus, that's a slave name. It means useful. It's the name of a tool. And this man becomes the lead pastor of the church. Like um, what the Christians were doing was different. Ultimately, this passage is about how people change. The hearts of people cannot be coerced, only their actions. If you try to change, you can, you can use threats of, of, of the gun and the sword, and you can try to threaten people and make sure you obey, you comply, or this will happen, or that will happen. That you can get them to change their actions, but it will not change their heart. It will not let them, let them buy into anything that you're actually selling. And in fact, you're leading to your future overthrowing is what you're doing. Um, as long as you try to force people and coerce them in this way, you are leading to the day when they gather and turn on you. What you're trying to do is enter into relationship with them so that you can actually know what they need. Um, and so that, you can, so that you can build that relationship so they can also know what you need because part of the ministry to other people is allowing them to minister to you as well. Because you may not realize it, but these people have so much to offer you. But oftentimes we can't see it in our privilege in our power, in our education, in all of the places that we stand from and speak from. And I know all these facts and I know all this stuff. And as long as you hold on to that idea, you will never learn what they have, what God has given them to give to you. And it has the ability and the power to change you. You have to humble yourself and lower yourself to their level. Um, the hearts of people cannot be coerced, only their actions. People change when they are ready, ready to change. Uh, when things no longer give what they promise, when, when the method no longer works, when people see the limits of their methods, this is what the sons of Sceva found. They found the limits of their power. They found something they could no longer control. And it overpowered them. This is how it is with all those who wield the power of God for fame and fortune and money. You will come to a place where you realize you are dealing with things that you cannot control. And God's going to intervene. Um, I like the way William Jennings uh, puts it his, in his commentary on the book of Acts. I, hi I highly recommend William Jennings' commentary, by the way. It's, uh, it's, this, it's very subversive. All right. Um, this limitation is, is one unearthed by the believers, not imposed on them. It's their recognition that a particular practice or belief will not yield what they imagine. So he says, he argues that when, it's only when you hit your limits of the direction that you're going that you actually admit that you're willing to change that you actually make a difference. I've always said no one ever changes their life when they're sitting on a beach in a hammock drinking uh, anything with, a, with, a, with an umbrella in it. Like, you don't change your life. You don't, you don't, you're like swinging. You're like, I think I'm going to change everything. It's all got to change. No, you, you change your life when you, when you find yourself crashing on the couch of your friend's place uh, because you can't go home because of what you've done. This is when you change your life. When you reach the limits of your actions and you realize there are repercussions for all of them and that you need other people to speak into your life. And you know what that person whose couch, who owns that couch would do? They would never bring you in and say, I'll let you sleep here if you do this and this and this and you admit all your problems and, and then we'll talk about this bed right here. No, 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 you bring them in and you feed them and you comfort them and you spend time with them. No power. You let them speak, you let them lead, and you let God work, and you pray with them and for them, even silently in your head as they're speaking. You ask God to help them think through these things. This is how people change. From top to bottom, there is no Christ-like way to wield power. 
it rests upon you and God places it there and you hold it lightly knowing that it must be freely offered to whoever else around you God brings into your midst that is how we do it don't try to hold on don't try to change people don't try to coerce them be with them pray for Christ likeness pray for growth um, and stay present with them as you move in this direction I mean that's why Paul in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power this is the way that it happens this is how it happens they gave up willingly the source of their power and so that's what I have for you today I mean I, I, I was laying in bed last night thinking through all of this there are I, I just keep thinking, thinking of, of instance after instance of, of, of how this applies in every conversation that you have I mean those people in your life that you are desperate to see them change their mind about one thing or another people don't change when you come at them with power you can bring a list of facts a mile long. What it's going to take is comfort. What it's going to take um, is presence. Is you modeling a healthy, Christ-like path in front of them and inviting them into it. Shut your mouth, pick up your rake, and start working. This is how it works. Um, and it's in these relationships that we are transformed. And so I want you to ponder that this week. I want you to look as you move throughout your week for all the ways that you're attempting to exercise power over people. And then I want you to ponder, is this what Christ was doing? And I want you to imagine Christ sitting there like washing people's feet and they're begging, no, this is not what you do. You're up top. This is the only way. This is the only way that God can save people. Pouring himself out. And he's inviting you into that. And so let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would go before us um, soften our hearts. Teach us what it means um, to be Christ-like. Teach us what it means that instead of, instead of taking their power and wielding it to try to make some change, that what you've actually done is entered into and allowed yourself to become sort of the, the object of those Weapons and the object of that power, the object of the scorn and the hatred and the bitterness, and you took it all upon yourself, and as you're doing this, you're looking them in the eyes and you're saying, Father, forgive them, they don't understand. And so, Father, right now, we don't understand. I pray for the day that we realize the limits, the limitations of our power in the ways that we have been displaying it and wielding it as individuals, as community, as a church, as Watermark Church, I pray that you would awaken us to the ways that we have been trying to wield earthly power. I pray that you would rip it out of our hands. I pray that we would go into our storehouses and grab all these idolatrous scrolls that we have been using to, to gain power over others, that we would throw them in a, bonfire, in a bonfire and just let them all go and trade them for your power. A humble, serious, loving, serving people that when people look at us, they see you. May they never see us. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's do the Lord's Prayer. Nice and loud. Come on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you. Have the greatest Sunday you've ever had.